A wise brother in Christ once told me that when you're leading others, be sure to be clear in your communication. Especially when leading others, we are to be clear in helping them have balanced and realistic expectations of what to anticipate in the future. Here's what this brother said to me. Blake, set your expectations for others low in what you tell others to expect, but then aim to over-deliver. Otherwise, if you set your expectations too high in what you tell others to expect, you're you're bound to under-deliver and then greatly disappoint others in the process. Now, to be certain, this brother was not saying that we should walk around with a pessimistic attitude. He wasn't saying that the glass half-empty is actually the new ambition for our life. He wasn't saying that doom and gloom should be the weekly mantra about work on Mondays. He wasn't thinking that we should get paranoid and afraid every single time that the slightest chance of inclement weather is coming into Arkansas, hashtag meteorologist. But friends, we all have expectations, don't we? Having expectations is not bad. It's a part of being a rational human being made in the image of God. We have expectations of how others ought to drive on the road. We have expectations of how restaurants we frequent should cook our meals in a timely manner. We have expectations that the person you hired at work will actually show up and do their job. We have expectations that the car we bought will get us from point A to point B without breaking down like our last car. And friends, we all have expectations of one another too, right? our family, our friends, our fellow church members and pastors, pretty much anyone we have a relationship with and anyone that we have some level of trust with, we have expectations of them and they have expectations of us. But I think we also have hidden expectations when it comes to how we view people whom we might deem as powerful or famous people who are highly sought out or even highly respected by the masses. Some, we might even say, have celebrity status. In my 37 years on earth so far, I definitely do not consider myself as well-known, famous, or powerful by any stretch of the means. But throughout the course of my life, I've been able to meet folks that either myself or maybe even some of you at one point or another has deemed as significant maybe famous, maybe someone you wish you knew or have met in your life. So for me, growing up, I met plenty of college football players that went on to play in the NFL. So I've met Michael Bulware, who played linebacker for the Florida State Seminoles and then went on to play strong safety for the Houston Texans and the Seattle Seahawks. I've met Greg Jones, who played fullback for the Jacksonville Jaguars. I've even went to high school and played football with a guy that went on to play for the San Francisco 49ers and the Seattle Seahawks. And pretty much over the last 25 years, I've met some of the most successful college football coaches. I've met Lou Holtz from the University of South Carolina. I've met Bobby Bowden from Florida State University. Uh, Even in high school, I was given an award at a banquet where the University of Georgia's head coach, Mark Rick, was the keynote speaker. Now, some of you who don't like football might think this is funny. I've even met or been in close proximity to a few actors before. Listen to some of these you may or may not know. 
I once met Julia Stiles, a form, former teen bopper movie star from the late 90s on the sidewalk in Manhattan. My brother and I were extras in a film where we were basically playing 1920s Princeton football players in a romantic comedy that was filmed in 2007. Now, I'm not suggesting you watch that movie. I never saw it, but my parents told me it was not something I probably need to watch. Uh, none of the scenes that we were in are inappropriate, but I think it was rated at something that, well, I wouldn't recommend. But some of the actors that were literally as close to me and you were George Clooney, uh, Renee Zellweger, and some of you who used to like the sitcom The Office, John Krasinski was the football player in the movie. I've been in my Christian pilgrimage so far. I've also had the unique opportunity to meet most of all my heroes in the faith. Now, Spurgeon is deceased. He has not come back. I will get to him in glory. But I've been able to meet many preachers, pastors, and Christian authors from all around the country that have played a big impact in my life. But I share all these things with you, not to try and impress you or somehow show that I'm important, because I've met people that might be deemed as important. Friends, there's absolutely nothing all that impressive about meeting a few famous people. Beloved, I share all these things to say, as some of these people might be considered the rich and famous. Uh, some of them might even be considered men who are Christian celebrities with a big ministry platform. At the end of the day, they are all just people. Normal human beings like you and I. Yes, they've been given a platform and possibly lots of money because of their talents or their skills. But at the end of the day, they all put on their pants and they all brush their teeth just like we do. They face problems and challenges and suffering and death the same way all mankind does. I have found that the longer I have walked with the Lord, my perception of these famous people has changed over time. Not because they aren't talented or wealthy, but mainly because I don't view them in the same limelight anymore. I'm not as starstruck or infatuated as I once was with these people. You see, the closer up I got to seeing them, what they're really like, and I got to know some of them on a way more personal level, the less my preconceived expectations of them were met. The longer I got to know them, the more I realized I had expectations of them that were either unbalanced or unrealistic. Friends, how do you think Jesus of Nazareth was perceived during his life? Was he considered famous or was he considered easily forgettable? Did people have expectations of Jesus that were too low and Jesus exceeded them? Or did they have expectations of Jesus that were too high, maybe unrealistic or unbalanced, and therefore somehow Jesus disappointed them? What about you? Are your expectations of Jesus this morning matching what Jesus wants you to truly know about him. If you have a copy of God's word, please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 specifically will be in Mark 11, verses 1 to 11. 
And if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 494, Mark chapter 11. This morning, we turn to the next chapter in Jesus' life. In fact, we turn to the last week of Jesus' life. Uh, What's interesting about the Gospel of Mark is that Mark, who has the shortest of all four Gospels, preserves the last six chapters of his Gospel, chapters 11 to 16, to focus on the last week of his life. Friends, that's nearly a third of his Gospel spent on the final week of his life. The Apostle John similarly does this in his Gospel. As John focuses on many of the same events from John 12 to John 21. And friends, that's nearly half his whole gospel on the final events of Jesus' life. Now, some of you who are an avid student of the Bible, you might be thinking to yourself, well, it seems pretty impossible. How could Mark put six chapters at the end of his gospel to cover just seven days of his life? I mean, that that seems like how on earth could all the things we're going to cover in the next few months happen in seven days? Well, it's good to read the Gospel of John, particularly chapters 10 and 11, because it appears that there were more things going on that led up to these events, which means that Mark compressed his Gospel, took a bunch of these events, smashed them there towards the end, and he's not as focused in his Gospel as John is about giving the last week in a chronological day-by-day account. He's seeming to focus in on the most significant moments of Jesus' final days. All that to say, in this last section in Mark's gospel, from chapter 11 to chapter 16, uh, I hope you and I walk away seeing the eye-opening, head-scratching, thought-provoking, heartbreaking, and hope-instilling moments of our Lord's life. And I pray today that the passage that we'll read this morning would recalibrate our expectations of Jesus and leave us in awe and wonder for the rest of our lives. Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is God's word. After two and a half chapters of reading about Jesus heading towards the holy city, here in Mark 11, 
we read now that Jesus finally arrives in Jerusalem. He is no longer on the way from Galilee, as we've been covering from basically Mark 8, 27 on. But he has now finally reached the very place his face had been set for quite some time. Verse 1 gives us a snapshot of the path or location that Jesus took heading into Jerusalem. And Mark is gracious to us, as the other gospel writers, to give us three locations to kind of give you the idea of where they were walking through as they arrived in Jerusalem. Look at there in verse 1. Mark says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives. The first location he gives is Bethphage. It's just a little village, a village that is somewhat less known in the Scriptures. Uh, there's not as much in the Bible about this village than there is with Bethany, which was in close proximity to it. According to John 11, verse 18, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles east of the city. Uh, Bethany, as you may recall, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, was where Lazarus lived, as well as Mary and Martha. Uh, Bethany is also a place we're going to go back to in Mark 14, where Simon the leper lives. And Jesus has an alabaster uh, flask of pure nard poured on him by Mary there in Bethany. Uh, both Bethphage and Bethany are located in close proximity to what Mark says right here, the Mount of Olives. And then in Acts 1 verse 12, uh, the Mount of Olives was about a Sabbath day journey away from Jerusalem. And that's just simply saying approximately 1,100 miles. I'm sorry, 1,100 yards or three-fifths of a mile. Or if you're more of the football mindset, that's about 10 football fields away from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives stood at 2,600 feet above sea level, about 300 feet higher than Jerusalem. It ran north to south on the eastern side of the holy city. Uh, verse 1 then sets the stage where Jesus and his disciples will together accomplish a plan, a plan that Jesus sets in motion and two of his disciples that Jesus uniquely chooses to execute that plan. So Jesus has set his face to Jerusalem. He's determined, he's focused, and he's getting there. What is his plan? What has he been planning all along to do from the very beginning? What are his disciples called to do in order to execute that plan? And how do the people in Jerusalem respond to Jesus when he shows up? If you're taking notes, I have three observation points that we will glean from this passage to answer those questions. Point number one, Jesus gives clear and detailed directives to his disciples. Jesus gives clear and detailed directives to his disciples. That's verses 1 to 3. Point number 2, the disciples do exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. The disciples do exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. That's verses 4 to 7. And then point number 3, the humble king is welcomed into the holy city with mixed responses. The humble king is welcomed into the holy city with mixed responses. That's verses 8 to 11. Let's do that first point together. Jesus gives clear and detailed directives to his disciples. Look with me again, starting at Mark 11, verse 1. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. Uh, You'll see here that Jesus doesn't commission all 12 of his disciples on this short-term mini-mission. He chooses two, two disciples. And the text doesn't tell us in any of the Gospels who these two disciples are. My hunch, just an educated guess, that it's not James and John, the sons of thunder. You're going, why do you have that hunch? Read Mark chapter 10 that we covered last week. The sons of thunder got the thunder taken out of them by Jesus. They were a little preoccupied with their egos and their pride. I'm not sure Jesus chose those two young men on this mission. Uh, But regardless, none of the gospel writers inform us who these two disciples are, and that that must mean that it's it's not all that important. Uh, Just another little sidebar here, a good hermeneutical principle when you interpret Scripture. When Scripture is silent, we should probably be too. When Scripture is silent, we should probably be too. Friends, we can look to principles and precepts, examples, and draw out implications from Scripture. But friends, Christians need to be reminded we should not be dogmatic in the Scriptures where the Scriptures are not. We should be silent, not dogmatic where the Scriptures are not. Just, again, where Scripture is silent, then we should probably be silent too. Moving on. What are these two disciples instructed by Jesus to do? Uh, Basically, Jesus tells them to find a young donkey, a colt, and specifically one that had never been ridden on before. And according to Jesus, he tells the disciples ahead of time that it won't take them very long to find that donkey. Look with me at verse 2. He says, go into the village, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Do you hear that kind of confidence? immediately. In other words, quick, fast, in a hurry. You will find, not might, not could, you will find a cold tide on which no one has ever sat. How would Jesus have known that? How would he have known that a young donkey whom no one had ever ridden, that was tied up, so not a stray donkey, be in the exact place at the exact time for his two fallible disciples to find. I mean, it appears that they were a little bit on a time crunch. You ever been running late for somewhere? And you're like, hey, we're going to make it. I'm going to take this shortcut. And then you find everybody else is trying to take that shortcut. You see, the Jewish week leading up to the Passover was at stake. And the Jews who had made the long trek were coming behind Jesus and the disciples, and they were already there in front of them like us today, heading to an event that we don't want to miss, the roads were probably packed bumper to bumper with donkey traffic. So how did Jesus know this detailed information ahead of time? Well, there's really three logical options we have. A, it would have been super common for donkeys to be out in the open and visible for people to see as you entered them. B, someone in the village told Jesus in advance. 
that there was a young, unridden donkey that would be available for him. Maybe Jesus was familiar with the area, and he would have known who the owner was by name. The owner would have known him by name. Or C, Jesus is showing his supernatural knowledge as the Son of God, knowing ahead of time what he's about to do when he arrives in the holy city. I think A is very likely, B is possible, and C is going to become very evident in the verses ahead. But once they find the beast of burden, Jesus told them to untie it and bring it to him. And like any type A planner would do, or any highly discerning mom or dad would do to their kids, Jesus anticipates that the disciples will get questioned. They might even get some pushback for snagging someone's cult out in the open public. Jesus says there in verse 3, If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and we'll send it back here immediately. I mean, think about this for a moment. If you're in the kitchen washing dishes, and you notice someone basically breaking into your car, or maybe you own some horses. Who's got horses up in here? Oh, don't be shy. Get them up high. There we go. And you're just, you know, having a good old day, playing outside, raking some leaves, and two teenage boys you've never met just saddle on up and take the horses away as if they belong to them. Well, what do you do? Wouldn't you just at least go outside and go, hey, what are you doing? That's my car. Those are my horses. Get your hands off my donkey. These two disciples are to walk into a village, untie a smelly, stinky, unridden animal because Jesus told them to. Don't ask questions. Here's how you respond. Bring it to me. You know what Jesus does? Jesus goes one step further. And he authorizes them not only to take the colt, but to tell the owners that the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Now, kids, this is another good hermeneutical or interpretation principle about the Bible. That doesn't mean, Micaiah, you can tell Jude, give me the football, the Lord has need of this. Or Aniah, you can't look at Lily Kate and say, Lily Kate, give me the keys to your car. The Lord needs this. Guys, that's just not going to fly. That's not only eisegesis, but it will put you in jail. Don't steal people's cars. Don't steal people's donkeys. Don't steal people's horses. Don't even put, Jesus told me to do that. He did it. You aren't the two disciples. We don't even know who they are. So just don't do that. Don't put words in Jesus' mouth that he never said. Friends, there are things that Jesus does in the scriptures that are unique to him. Walking on water, feeding 5,000 with bread and a few fish, stilling a storm with a word. All the faith preachers need to stop it. That is unique to Jesus and Jesus alone. But in this particular situation, the disciples understand that once Jesus has been alluded to himself now, not as Jesus, not as a man from Nazareth, he alludes to himself, did you get that in verse 3? The Lord. 
Friends, the disciples would have heard Jesus say this a few other times in his ministry. And in those previous contexts, friends, there's a lot more going on than just Jesus using a respectful title of a human being. Do you recall Mark chapter 2 and how Jesus referred to himself with authority over the Sabbath day? Remember what's the Sabbath day? It's that special set-apart day once in a week that God ordained at creation. You remember what Mark 2, 27 and 28 said? And Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Or even consider Mark chapter 5, when Jesus healed the demoniac man, and he gave him direct orders to remain in his homeland to evangelize his family and friends. Listen again to Mark 5, 18 to 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is super important. The word there for Lord in the Greek is kurios. Can we say that together? Kurios. It can sometimes refer to a word in our English language as sir, a respectful title, or lowercase l, Lord, as Sarah called Abraham, her Lord, 1 Peter 3. However, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, used the word Lord or kurios as the rendering of the Hebrew word Adon, or Adonai, which is the equivalent for Yahweh in the scriptures. In total, the word kurios is alluded to 6,000 times from the Old and New Testament alike for the proper name of Yahweh, or Jehovah. And in the New Testament, 640 times, it is in clear reference to God. Now, why is this important? In the New Testament, kurios is used without reservation, without embarrassment, without hesitation to Jesus. Therefore, when Jesus refers to himself in Mark's gospel as the Lord, he's not referring to himself in some respectful way like you would your boss at work. Friends, he's alluding to himself, his identity as one who has divine and absolute authority as God or Yahweh in human flesh. Now, whether the disciples understood this in its full capacity, it's probably not happening for them. They doubted things that Jesus taught and did leading up to the crucifixion, and they doubted him even after he got up from the dead. But friends, regardless if the disciples understood what Jesus meant, regardless if the owner of the cult understood what the disciples meant when Jesus said, the Lord has need of it. Friends, Jesus knew exactly who he is, who he was, and who he always will be. He is kurios. He is the Lord. He is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, the one that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the kurios, quoting from Isaiah about Yahweh. Jesus is not a respectful man. Jesus is God in human flesh. Oh, so when the disciples go out there 
and they're about to hijack a cult. And the owner goes, what are you doing? When they said, the Lord needs this, they were in essence saying, the creator has called for his cult. But how do the two disciples respond to Jesus' commands? Leads to point number two. The disciples do exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. Look at verses four to seven. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing? Untying the colt. And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Notice again the details that Jesus told them how they were to execute this plan. Jesus first tells them where to go. He told them to go to a specific place. Go into the village in front of you, verse 2. Secondly, Jesus gives them a timestamp of anticipation of what to be looking for when they enter the village. Verse 2 says, immediately as you enter. Thirdly, Jesus gives them the specific goal they are to accomplish. They are to find and to free. They are to find a specific cult, one that is tied and one that no one had ever ridden. And then they are to free that specific cult and bring it straight to Jesus. Jesus said, untie it and bring it. And fourthly, Jesus gives them further instructions on what to say in case anyone pushes back or asks, what on earth are you doing? And what do these disciples do? In response to Jesus's directives, his commands, What do these two disciples do in response to what the Lord commanded them to do? They obeyed. They obeyed. They obeyed Jesus without hesitation. They obeyed Jesus without reservation. They obeyed Jesus without any pushback or making excuses to Jesus. Jesus gave them clear and detailed directives and they obeyed. Friends, if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus, does your obedience reflect their obedience? Does your life over the last week give testimony as someone who obeys Jesus with their life? When Jesus gives us commands clearly from the scriptures that you hear in the weekly sermons, that you hear in the weekly Bible studies, that you read in your quiet time or you listen to on the radio or a book you read, is your first response, yes, Lord. Or is it finding excuses and loopholes, making qualifications for why you 
don't have time to obey Jesus. Look at your life over the last few months, over the, even the last year. Would the people who know you the best say that you take obvious steps of prayerful, self-denying obedience, self-denying dependence on God to obey Jesus without hesitation, without reservation, to obey Jesus without any pushback to Jesus or make excuses to Jesus. Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, listen carefully, John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I want to say it again. I want it to ring in our ears this morning. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not if you like Jesus, not if you respect Jesus, not if you don't mind Jesus. No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Friends, let me ask you a question that I've had to self-reflect on even this week in this sermon. Do you cherish Jesus? I didn't mean things about related to religion or people you know that love Jesus. Do you cherish Jesus? Do you treasure him? Do you delight in him? Do you look forward to going to him in prayer each day? When you hear the teachings of Jesus, does it cause your heart to leap with joy? Like any young man desiring to marry another young lady, he counts down every second, every hour, every day, waiting for that big day to be united with his bride because he loves her. Or a mom or dad who's had to say goodbye to their child who was deployed for 15 months. What do you think they're going to be like when he comes back to the airport? They're going to be overwhelmed. There's going to be an eager anticipation because they love him. Friends, do you love Jesus? Do you love this Jesus? Jesus the Lord. Jesus our Savior. If you love me, Jesus said, you will what? Keep my commandments. Friends, Jesus was serious about this. On the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said that there are many people who profess to know me. And one day, on the last day, will reveal they never did love Jesus. Do you recall what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 to 23? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, kurios, kurios, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I, kurios, Jesus, will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Notice what he says. You workers of lawlessness. Here's a literal translation of that. Depart from me, 
you who boldly say that you know me, but you lived a life that showed you did not obey me. You literally are a laborer of disobedience. Your life has been marked by constant rebellion to King Jesus. And Jesus says, many on that day who profess to know kurios, kurios, Jesus will say, I never knew you. Get out of my presence, you worker of lawlessness. Brothers and sisters, we are not made right with God by our obedience. But our obedience, or the lack thereof, will tell us a lot about our relationship with God. Friends, we are saved by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ died as a ransom, a sin-atoning sacrifice to free us from the penalty of sin under God's law. And Jesus died as a ransom to free us from the tyranny or the slavery of our sinful flesh. Friends, the Christian life is not a perfect life, but it is a life one of forward, progressive sanctification. From the day God causes us to be born again, we begin taking baby steps of faith and obedience. And throughout the rest of our lives, we then walk by faith and not by sight as we keep our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Yet at the same time, obedience to Jesus, listen, is not just the right thing to do. Obedience to Jesus is the pathway to experiencing the abundant life that Jesus came to give us in him. Friends, obedience to Jesus for the Christian is both a duty and a delight. Did you hear that? A legalistic, moralistic, backslidden Baptist who's never been born again loves doing stuff and activity but has no love for Jesus. It's not a delight. It's not they're all consuming treasure or cherishing. Oh, friends, obedience is the fruit of our salvation. But faith in Jesus is the root of our salvation. And friends, that's why obedience to Jesus and his commands are one of the tests of assurance of whether or not we know him. Friends, I would encourage you to read 1 John this week. 1 John summarizes in five chapters the very test on whether or not we truly know Jesus. He goes through faith, love, obedience, teaching, and knowing the truth about God and the gospel and holy living. Friends, we should all do that for our own souls so that we might truly know if we've been born again. And we should do that also for the souls we care about. You're going to be at Thanksgiving with family probably this week or maybe this Christmas. There are family members right now who profess to know kurios, kurios, the Lord Jesus, and they don't. You need to help them have assurance from the scriptures on whether or not they know the Lord. Read 1 John this week. May that be a sanctifying experience. Friends, this brief section here in Mark 11, 4-7, not only emphasizes the call of obedience on our life as disciples, but friends, it's also a principal guide for how to discern the will of God in our life. An effort to help Christians discern the will of God in their life, the Puritan John Flavel once gave these five principles in mind. If you don't get them all down, you can certainly listen to the recording. Listen to carefully what he says. 
If therefore in doubtful cases you would discover God's will, govern yourselves in your search after these rules. Number one, get the true fear of God upon your hearts. Be really afraid of offending him. Get the true fear of God upon your hearts. Be really afraid of offending him. Friends, we can grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30. We want to be very cautious of grieving the Spirit within us. Number two, study the word more and the concerns and interests of the world less. Study the word more and the concerns and interests of the world less. Number three, reduce what you know into practice and you shall know what is your duty to practice. Reduce what you know into practice and you shall know what is your duty to practice. Number four, pray for illumination and direction in the way that you should go. Pray for illumination and direction in the way that you should go. And number five, and this being done, follow providence as far as it agrees with the word and no farther. And this being done, follow providence as far as it agrees with the word and no farther. Uh, Friends, what are these principles that we hear, those five, just kind of boil it down to two? If you want to discern the will of God in your life, what pleases the Lord? To fulfill the good plans that he has ordained for us to walk in and to do that actually with confidence and joy. First, obey the clear directives, the clear commands that come straight out of Scripture. Obey the clear directives, the clear commands that come right out of Scripture. So to help you do that, we're all going to pretend we're having a quiet time together on Monday morning, okay? Uh, I don't feel like going to work. I know I need to read the Bible. Uh, where are we at in the Bible? Oh, uh, we're in Colossians. Okay, so turn over to Colossians. Go over to Colossians. Let's just pretend you're reading in Colossians in your quiet time. Do this with me. This is good for your heart, good for your soul. Colossians 3. You're having your quiet time in Colossians. You know you ought to read the Bible, but your heart's dry. You're looking at your phone. You've checked Facebook like 10 times, looking at the news. Oh, you got to go. Well, we're just pausing all that for a minute. I want you to look at Colossians, okay? Let's say Colossians 3 is in your next quiet time, okay? You're a follower of Jesus. You want to know God's will in your life. The first principle is obey the clear directives of Scripture. Like, what does God's Word say? Apply it to my life. Look with me in Colossians 3. I'm just going to read And I want you to listen. Colossians 3, starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator." Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called into one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So let's say that was your quiet time. Took you a few minutes to read it, had a few sips of coffee or Diet Coke, whatever floats your boat. What should you do? Okay, we're taking John Flavel's advice here. We're going to start with prayer. Pray that God puts you, instills in you a holy fear to care most about pleasing the Lord rather than pleasing men. That's what it means to set your mind on things above. The whole passage is about living with that heavenly mindset on earth. I want to please the Lord Jesus with my life even more than those who are around me. Pray that I would much rather offend others with the truth rather than offend God by disobeying the truth, okay? Prayer. Secondly, look at your relationships. The whole chapter is in the context of a church, family, and out in the workplace. Look in the home, look in the church, look in the classroom, look at the workplace. Take every verse, those first 20 so verses, and see how it applies to you. Memorize a verse. Meditate on that verse. That just simply means think about it all day long. And then, Thirdly, obey what you read and trust God with the results. Obey what you read and trust God with the results. We say, well, Blake, what if I sin? No, it's not if you sin, it's when you sin. That's all of us. So when we sin and fall short of God's commands, friends, we confess those faults to the Lord. Friends, do you ever pay attention during the Lord's Supper when I lead us in that prayer of confession? Have you ever thought about one of those confessions that I lead us to pray? Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from your ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against your holy laws. Listen to this one. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And apart from your gracious work in Christ, there is no health in us. Friends, that's why we lead our church every Lord's Day in a prayer of confession. Because we all should be humbly to re- recognize we haven't lived up to God's commands. We have either ignored them, rebelled them, or given Jesus excuses. But do you notice what happens after the prayer of confession? We hear an assurance of pardon. It's not we're being resaved every Sunday. We're not Roman Catholic. No, we're being assured of God's grace that can never be taken from you. Every Lord's Day, 
when we pray that prayer of confession, we acknowledge our faults and our disobedience, but we receive again what God's already given to us in Christ. It reassures that God loves us. Now that second big principle though in discerning God's will is what I do like to call providential promptings. Providential promptings. Consider with ongoing discernment wherever you are in your life, as you are going, that sometimes discerning God's will is just not chapter and verse. We live in a real world, a fallen world, and we have to apply God's word in a ton of different ways. So for the two disciples, think for a minute. Jesus tells them, go into the village. You're going to find a young colt that's never been ridden on. Untie it. If the owner says something to you, gives you a little pushback, here's what you ought to say. And they were actually to trust Jesus, knows what he's talking about. They're going to find the donkey, and the owner is not going to, like, beat him upside the head. They have to trust Jesus with those commands. They don't know what the future is going to hold. They have to take clear teaching from God's word and walk out into the village. They actually have to do what? Walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus doesn't go with them. They have to trust that their kurios, their Lord, is trustworthy to obey. So friends, what are those providential promptings that could be in our life? Man, there could be hundreds, thousands. Let me give you some to think about. Maybe it's that phone call you know you need to make, but you keep putting it off. Make the phone call today. It's a letter of encouragement. You know you should write to that fellow believer or that fellow elder or pastor that's blessed your life. Maybe it's that conversation at church that you need to initiate instead of endlessly waiting for the perfect timing, which can just simply be sometimes Christian language for you're a coward. Just initiate it. It could be a need God has made known to you and you have the means and the money or the time to meet that need right now. It could be a neighbor you've bumped into multiple times and crossed paths with again. And it's been bothering you that you just avoid them. Maybe it's a person that keeps coming to mind while you're praying in the morning or at night. Instead of writing it off as random, consider praying more earnestly for them. Consider praying for them and then actually going up to them or calling them and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? You've been on my heart lately. Consider maybe there's even a secret sin. You need to stop hiding from your spouse and come clean today. Maybe it's a secret sin that a child needs to go tell their parents they've been hiding from their parents for a long time. Maybe there is a member of our own church that you've noticed that is drifting from this fellowship. Maybe from the lack of fruit you see in their life, they might be drifting from the Lord. And instead of putting all the pressure on the elders to go after them, maybe God has put them on your heart to pursue them in love. Friends, maybe these providential properties aren't all that deep and serious. They could just be some common grace ways to care for yourself that God keeps bringing up to your mind. For example, maybe in honor to the Lord, our body is a temple. Maybe you've been convicted that you need to take care of your body better. Lose weight, have a healthier lifestyle, exercise, get to bed on time, get out of bed on time, etc. It could simply be telling your parents or your siblings or your kids that you love them and that you felt convicted lately of taking them for granted. 
It can mean you're not going to spread yourself so thin anymore and serve in five different ministries. Maybe just serve one or two really well. It could mean you're going to stop binge-watching television for a season and instead fast from technology to read a good Christian book in place of it. It could mean you're going to stop spending money unwisely and ask others to help you form a biblically wise and generous budget. It could mean telling your boss you're done. You're going to respectfully put in your two-week notice because you're going to find a job that's better for you spiritually and better for your family long-term. Friends, there are endless amounts of things. And even today, if you're sitting here and you're going, if I were to be honest, I've been living a double life. I might even be a member of this church. I might be a family member. I've been wearing this facade for years. I don't truly love Jesus, but I'm tired of riding the fence. I want to give my whole life to Jesus today. Friends, today is the day of salvation. You can't hide from Jesus. Just go to him. Receive him by faith. Stop wasting your life. Become a Christian and experience the abundant life starting now. Friends, on a more personal level, I remember about eight or nine years ago in my living room, I had an older, wiser couple in my, in my living room, and I was sharing with them some things I was torn up in knots over on what to do. And this older man who just kind of shoots it to you straight, uh, you know, he's got a little country bumpkin to him and just tells you like it is. And he looked at me, he said, Blake, and he had this really deep voice. I can't do Mr. Edwards' voice. Julia remembers Edwards. He said, Blake, you can't lead a horse who is sitting down. What? And he just said it just kind of off the cuff. He said, Blake, you can't lead a horse who is sitting down. I reflected on that advice that day and found some Bible to support this. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. If you're wondering of how God's going to guide you, discerning the will of God, here's a good text to think about. Psalm 32, 8 and 9. Here's a promise. Here's a warning. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Isn't that a glorious promise? The Lord's going to lead us. He's going to counsel us with his eye upon us. Amen, hallelujah. Then here's the warning. This is not very flattering, by the way. Verse 9. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, don't be stubborn. Don't kick against me. Don't keep trying to do things your way. Yield to me, the Lord says. Humble yourself. Trust me. I know everything you need to know. I have the future in my hands. I have the present in my hands. I'm the Lord. Don't be like an ignorant, stubborn farm animal. Be like a sheep who knows their good shepherd. Brothers and sisters, whether it's the clear commands of Scripture or those providential promptings, where God brings someone to mind or a conviction or an obligation. Friends, we should look at what the disciples did with Jesus. When Jesus gave them clear commands, they obeyed. The disciples did exactly what Jesus commanded them to do. Our final point, which reveals why Jesus authorized this plan and how others received him in Jerusalem. Point number three, the humble king is welcomed into the holy city with mixed responses. Look with me at verses 8 to 11. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessing is the coming kingdom of our father David! 
Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's obvious from verse 8 that there were many people gathered in the city when Jesus arrived. Look what it says. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. Uh, This practice would not have been totally unheard of by the Jews in their history. Uh, Back in 2 Kings chapter 9, King uh, Jehu uh, was given a grand kind of red carpet-like entrance when he was coronated as king. But what is profound, though, about what's going on in Mark 11 is that Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem with the same kind of welcome, like a king. The leafy branches were branches from palm trees. We know that from John's gospel in John 12, verse 13, so they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. But then in verses 9 and 10, we begin to gain more clarity for the purposes for which Jesus called these young disciples to go find this young, unridden cult and the reason for the loud and exuberant celebration by the people. Look with me again at verses 9 and 10. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This proclamation of the word Hosanna is a transliterated Hebrew word literally means save us, we pray, or please save. It's a prayer found in one of the Egyptian Hallel Psalms. So from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, these were Psalms that the Jews would sing before, during, and after the Passover feast. The Hallel Psalms are really one book of Psalms there, or not really book, but collection, where the Jews would remember God's mighty and victorious deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. In fact, did you notice when Jesus has the Lord's Supper, he institutes it later in the gospel? In Matthew 26, they sing a hymn at the end of the Lord's Supper. You wanna know what that hymn probably was? It was probably Psalm 118, which is the last Psalm in the Hallel Psalms that Andrew read earlier. Friends, why is that significant? Well, the word Hallel means praise, Psalms of praise. They were praising the Lord around the Passover. And this particular Hillel, as I've already alluded to, is from Psalm 118. Did you pick it up when Andrew was reading earlier and what our text says here today? Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 reads, Save us, we pray, O Lord, Yahweh. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Friends, why is that significant? Why is it significant that of all the psalms they're singing around the Passover feast, when Jesus arrives, they are shouting, verses 25 and 26 from Psalm 118. Why are then the people bowing down when he arrives? Why are they giving him a red carpet-like entrance with leafy palm branches being waved? Why are they recalling a psalm about God being their victor and deliverer from their enemies? The God who gives salvation and victory for his people. 
And friends, think about it for a minute. Why is Jesus of Nazareth, a no-name town, from really, to some degree, a no-name family, getting all this press coverage as if he was famous when he arrives in Jerusalem? Friends, it's because something else was going on that day when they saw the transportation Jesus took into the city. You see, it wasn't just Psalm 118 that they recalled to mind, but it was an animal they saw Jesus riding. Again, Mark doesn't explicitly tell us the prophecy, but the other gospel writers do. In Matthew and in John, they quote from Zechariah 9, verse 9. I want you to listen again carefully. A prophecy made many years before. Zechariah 9, verse 9 and 10. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. At the center of Zechariah's vision is a salvation for God's people, Israel. And it was a king coming to Israel. A king that would rule the nations and bring peace and righteousness. Which alludes to those other Davidic Psalms and those other Psalms that speak of the Messiah. Like Psalm 2 or Psalm 72. Or the fact that they keep saying, blessed is the one who's coming into my kingdom of my father, David. They're speaking about that one from Psalm 89, a descendant of King David whose kingdom would rule forever. What was Jesus riding on when he entered Jerusalem? Jesus wasn't riding on a war horse. Jesus wasn't riding in on some glamorous, gaudy chariot like most kings would have in the ancient day. He was riding on the foal of a donkey, a colt, a farm animal. The prophecy clearly told us what kind of king he would be. He says, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What will this king be like? He will be righteous. That means this king is always right in what he says and what he does. In the eyes of God, under the law of God, he always perfectly pleases Almighty God. Friends, there was never a king in Israel. Count it David, Solomon, Hezekiah, Josiah. None of them could fit that bill. Only Jesus fit that bill. The king would also bring with him hope and victory. Did you notice he brings with him salvation? This promised king would come as a descendant of his father, David and inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. His kingdom would bring forgiveness of sins, adoption into God's family, the new birth by his spirit, and an everlasting inheritance to those who he saves. Friends, only Jesus fits that bill. Isn't that what Andrew read earlier from Acts 4, 11 and 12? This Jesus that the stone was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. 
Friends, Jesus was prophesied to be the one who will come and save his people from their sins. Not might save, not hope to save, not make it possible to be saved, but he will save his people from their sins. Matthew 121. To my non-Christian friend, why should you bow the knee to Jesus as Lord? Why should you call upon the name, the only name under heaven by which we must be saved? Because friend, just like you and I and everyone in this room, we're exceedingly sinful. We're exceedingly disobedient to this good God and we deserve his eternal judgment. At the same time, this God is exceedingly merciful, full of steadfast love and mercy to all of us who turn from our sins and receive this Savior by faith. Jesus came to conquer our greatest enemies, sin, devil, and death. Friends, if you turn from your sins today and trust in this risen King who died as a substitute on the cross, bearing the penalty of our own sin, accepting his forgiveness and his perfect obedient life, and believe that God raised him from the dead, calling upon him as your Lord and Savior, you will be saved and be brought into his kingdom forever. Friends, how does Jesus execute the office of a king? As we heard earlier, he executes the office of a king and subduing to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Friends, we are just reaching or just surpassed the midterm elections. In two years, we'll have another presidential election. And guess what we'll probably have? A very divided nation. Guess what else we'll have? A lot of divided churches that don't center their unity around the gospel. I'm already preparing our elders for the next two years to get ready for it so that we're equipped to keep our eyes on the gospel. You can be sharply divided on political views and political candidates. I don't really care and want to know who you vote for. All I want to know is this. At the end of the day, no matter how much money or how many names you sign or how passionate you are for certain policies and views, King Jesus is our greatest hope. That's not a cute thing to say in a sermon. It is the divide between a true Christian and one that's not. Yes, we want the gospel to spread. Yes, we want laws and policies that help the gospel spread, protect religious freedom, define what marriage is, define what a child is. Yes, we should have a prophetic voice to the nations. Yes, amen, hallelujah. But the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. We will not be loved by the world if you love Jesus as we're called to. What did did Andrew read earlier from Psalm 118? which is the backdrop backdrop to this, this gospel. It is better to take refuge in the Lord, listen, than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Fill in whatever other term you want. To trust in presidents, to trust in governors, to trust in mayors, to trust in whatever political or even spiritual leadership in the world, it is better to trust in the Lord. Friends, it is better. And that's what they're singing when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Friends, did you notice that one last characteristic about this king? Zechariah would say he would be humble 
and mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey. Imagine that description coming on the TV for the next political campaign. Humble and riding on a donkey, the hope of the nations. Imagine that description being on the ballot at the voting booth. Humble, mounted on a donkey. Not haughty, not braggadocious, not arrogant, not loud, not pompous on a war horse. Not self-centered, not full of themselves, not pugnacious, not egotistical, flying in on a Boeing 747 jet or Air Force One. Not unkind, not unapproachable, not ungodly, like so many of the rulers of this present world order. No, this king would be humble, lowly, mounted on a dirty, young, unridden farm animal. That's our Jesus. That's our king. He is strong and he is mighty. He is the Lord, the master of the universe, and he is meek towards the weakest of us all. That is a king worth bowing to. That is a king worth celebrating. And friends, you would think, the end of the story. Well, that's not how it ends. It began with a cry of praise. Hosanna! A king has come. The fulfillment of God's prophecy. It seems that the excitement was short-lived. The pep rally didn't last long. The celebration service ended quicker than a rushed birthday party. The triumphal entry of Jerusalem's promised king started with a bang. But then quickly subsided. Look at verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus enters the holy city, and by mid-afternoon-ish, that's what's referred to there as it was already late, notice where Jesus went. He left the parade and went into the temple, the place of worship the place where religious leaders would have been roaming around, doing their duties, welcoming the most famous celebrity status Jewish rabbis, celebrity status elders and priests in Jerusalem. But for Jesus, no one at the temple welcomed him. In fact, it just seems like people just kind of didn't even know he was there. We'll find in the next couple of chapters, Jesus is going to go face to face with those religious leaders. But on this day, this glorious day of celebration, that a king has arrived, God's anointed king, the most famous and respected of the Jewish people, they don't seem to really care. He's just some Jewish man riding on a dirty donkey during the week of Passover with some crazies shouting at the top of their lungs, Hosanna. What about the loud crowd? Did they keep following him? Did they carry their palm branches with them? Did they carry their cloaks with them and continue the celebration? Apparently their expectations of Jesus were unrealistic or unbalanced. See, they thought that Jesus would come immediately to deliver them from their human enemies, like kings and governors. Like the disciples had to learn before Jesus would reign at the right hand of the Father, 
before he would establish his kingdom on earth, he had to go die on a cross. There is no crown without a cross. Before Zechariah 9.9 could be fulfilled in its entirety, Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant had to be fulfilled. Mark Jones once said this, quote, The very conquest the people wanted was not found in the king's sword, but in his suffering. In his death, Jesus not only took away sin, but also conquered the forces of evil and death. As a true king, he laid down his life for his people. In his suffering, true conquest came. You see, friends, when Jesus arrived on that humble donkey, people thought he was coming to deliver them from Roman oppression. But he didn't. Jesus had bigger enemies to fry first. Sin, Satan, and death. The passage begins with the masses celebrating him. The passage continues with the disciples obeying him. And then just a few hours later, just mid-afternoon, it's quiet. No more celebration. No more crowds. Members of CCBC, if we follow the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes people will be your greatest fan and sometimes they will be your greatest enemy. Sometimes people will be happy and excited that you obey Jesus. And sometimes it's going to rub others the wrong way. Friend, let me remind you, we want as many people as we can to come to our church and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But woe are us if all men speak well of us. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And friends, if they hated Jesus, they will hate who? They will hate you too. Members of CCBC, may the humility of our reigning king who humbly rode a donkey humble us and make us humble and happy servants of this king. May we simply trust and obey this Jesus, kurios, with even commands that seem small and insignificant at the time. Friends, Jesus rode into Jerusalem, humble and lowly, on a donkey. Jesus has promised to come back a second time, but this time he's coming to judge the world on a white horse. Do you love this Jesus? Is he truly Lord of your life? Jesus is the lamb upon the throne. Jesus is the Lord of life. Jesus is the Lord of peace. Jesus is the Lord of love. Is he Lord of your life? Let's pray. Father, we do praise you that you made a promise many years ago to send a righteous and humble king on the foal of a donkey. And you did in the person of your son, Jesus. And we praise you that it is better to trust in you than in man, to trust in this great king than in the princes of this world. Lord, we pray that you would cause us to be bold and aggressively obedient. 
to this wonderful king. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.